blessing to be here today. It's good to see you here joining us for our worship service. If you're joining us over the internet, we welcome you and thank you for tuning in to us. We continue our reading in scripture in Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, our ushers have Bibles in the back and they'll bring a Bible to you if you raise your hand. As is our custom, we read from the ESV, the English Standard Version, reading Galatians chapter 3. Let's all stand then and respect the reading of God's holy word. Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all, the thing, by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it had been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance come by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We thank God for his word and ask him to allow us to understand his word as we preach through it and learn through it today. Let's bow in a moment of prayer before our choir comes and after choir we have a special message from God's word and then after a special message our time of communion in the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for blessing and protecting and, and uh, carrying us through this week. We thank you for your provisions to us. We thank you for allowing us to come into fellowship together today as believers. Thank you for the freedom that we have so far to worship and to serve you. And we would pray that those freedoms may continue, and even if they don't, Lord, that we will be steadfast in serving you, no matter what the state of our government is. We thank you for the opportunity this week to, to have a say by election in that. And we pray, Lord, that we would be earnest in searching and making a right decision based on your truth and your word how we ought to make that, those selections in our voting, in our election. We pray most of all, Lord, for the spiritual state of your people, knowing that that is far of far greater importance than anything that we might endure physically. We pray that we take advantage of the gospel and speak it and live it freely before others, we pray for those who are doing so. We pray for those who have a testimony, even in sickness, of glorifying you. We pray that you would maintain them and keep them and bless them and increase their testimony and influence that those who see them who don't know Christ might marvel at Christ and his power in their life and come to know Christ. We pray, Lord, for real faith among us who gather here today, that you would speak your word and help us to understand the awesomeness, the glory of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who came to pay the price for our sin and to accomplish what we could not do on our own and provide to us salvation. We thank you for that. Help us to understand it more and more, and even more importantly, to glory in it more and more. So we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated as our choir comes to special music.
Galatians is a powerful book because it shows the importance of the gospel truth and what that truth is. We read from chapter 2 when he says, verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's a powerful and straightforward statement, but what does it mean? Justified, first of all, means to be made right with God, to be declared righteous. And so he'll use another term later on in chapter 3, talks about righteousness. And you need to understand when, it, when the Bible talks about believers being righteous, it's not something that we have intrinsically in ourselves or it's not something that he has put in us that we become righteous. It is something that he orders and declares us to be and we have because of faith in Christ. There's a problem with Galatians that, that people have. And it's the reason why Galatians is so important. Galatians takes the glory out of man and puts it on God because it is nothing attributed to ourselves that we are made right before God or have a right standing with God or come into right relationship with God. It's nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with what God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you say, I'm a believer, pride disappears. There's no room for pride in faith. Another word for pride will be glory. The glory goes not to the individual, the human being, but it goes to God. So if you thought now that being a believer makes you into something that you can glory in, you think wrong and you understand the gospel wrongly. But if you were to understand that, that the gospel points me to be a sinner who has been saved by God's power and his grace through the death and the resurrection of his son and that God has caused me to be born again, to have life and to, to, to trust or put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you understand what the gospel is teaching. And therefore the glory goes to God and not to man. In chapter 3, let's get into it. Verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Paul doesn't hesitate. He uses this term twice to speak of the foolishness of their thought. What does he mean by foolish? He means you are out of your mind nuts. You're deranged in your thinking. He says, if you think that the gospel is dependent on what you do, on the good that you do, and the obedience that you bring. You bring nothing to the table. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Then he uses another term. Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish, he says again. Are you deranged in your thinking? 
And then he uses the second term in verse 1. Who has bewitched you? Somebody has put a devilish spell on you that got you thinking in this crazy, deranged way. What way were they thinking? They were thinking that as Gentiles who were not part of the Jewish heritage, they had to, in essence, become a Jew first in order to be made right by God and in order to be saved. They had to enact all of the rules and the guidelines that the Jews did so that they could be right. And one of those included circumcision. Paul is a Jew. And remember his, his argument with Peter, who was a Jew, who both Peter and Paul are apostles. That's why I go back to chapter 2, verse 15. He's talking to Peter in essence and saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth, Okay. And we, we, we aren't Gentiles, we're not Gentile sinners, but yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. I'm not bringing this argument because I'm a Gentile and, and, and don't want to follow the law and want to make a path for myself. I'm a Jew by birth. But the truth of the gospel must be maintained. And this is what he says. We as Jews know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. We know that it's not circumcision that saves you, so why are you trying to push that or get other Gentiles to accept that? And he talks to the Gentiles, as I mentioned, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The term publicly portrayed. Portrayed is the picture, right? Paul had preached in such a way that they could see as if they were there themselves that Jesus had been crucified. He says, I've given you a vivid picture of Jesus crucified. In other words, he said, why did I do that? If all you had to do was be circumcised, why would I be preaching Christ crucified if that was so important? Now, before you just kind of phase out thinking that I ain't got to hang up with, 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 with uh, circumcision, you need to understand, circumcision is just one of the things that they dealt with in that time, but it represents any act or work that man might do to make himself right. In fact, what it does is it talks about all other religions. Do you realize that every religion says you've got to do something to be right with God? And the only one that doesn't is the gospel that says not only do you, do, do you, ha do, do you not have to do something to get right with God, you can't do anything to get right with God. There is nothing you can do in, in, in your uh, own self to bring you right before God. Why? Because it's impossible for you or I to meet a standard that would make us right with God. That's what the gospel says. So he says, Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. And he said, let me ask you only this. He asked a series of questions, but the main question comes is, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? 
He begins to talk about the Holy Spirit because there was something that, that, that was a witness to them that was undeniable, and that something was the work, the operation that the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit did something that made them know that they belonged to God, and it was undeniable, and he's saying, did that come from your doing and obeying the law? What you're going to see throughout Galatians, there is this emphasis. He gets back to this in the last chapters about the Holy Spirit because it's important to his argument. He's saying, look, you don't have to obey the law to become saved. In fact, you cannot become saved by obeying the law. But then he goes back, because some people were taken from that. Well, see, I'm free. I'm free from the law. I do not have to obey the law because I, I, I'm in Christ. And they were taking from that an attitude to saying, there is no law for me. I, can, I have liberty to do as I please. And Paul says, hey, the gospel says there is no law for you and you are liberty, but you belong to Christ and therefore you have another law working in you. And that law is no law, but it's a person. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now begins to guide and direct everything you do and everything you say as if he is now the law operating in you. And so the Holy Spirit is important, and you'll see the development or the understanding of how the Holy Spirit works as we go throughout Galatians. But he just touches on it. He says, hey, look, y'all were saved. The Holy Spirit worked in you. Did that come because you believed, or did that come because you had somebody do an operation of circumcision on you? Really? Really? They took out a knife, sharpened it up, and cut you, and now you had the Holy Spirit. Really? Is that how it happened? He says, no. You have the Holy Spirit living in you because you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit belongs to those who have faith in Christ and them only. So he says to them, a pretty powerful witness to them. How did you get the Holy Spirit? How did that happen? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The obvious answer is they received the Holy Spirit by trusting Christ as their Lord and Savior. By the way, he doesn't add anything else to that either. It ain't jumping over pews. It ain't speaking with tongues. It's not any other thing. It is by faith. It's all bundled together. Let's continue. Ask a couple other questions. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, how dumb does this sound? God gave you the Holy Spirit to give you life, and you think now you on your own and you can sustain his life with your power. If you needed the Holy Spirit to give you life, don't you need the Holy Spirit to sustain you? If you counted on him for life, are you to count on now something else, yourself or your obedience to the law, to continue in this walk? He says, how foolish has your thinking become? Now keep in mind, when he talks about foolish thinking, he, 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 he's, he has in mind that 
The doctrine that they receive affects the way, not just the way they think, but the way they think affects the way they live. And we can reverse that as well. If you're not living right, you're probably not thinking right. You're probably not believing right. If you are believing right, you'll be challenged and you'll correctly, you'll be corrected and come to that which is right. You'll agree with what God has to say. You'll line up with what he has to say. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I like that he, he keeps that question. It might be in vain. I don't know. I hope it's not because I think you're true and you're real. In other words, suffering was a part of the Christian walk as well. It, it, people want to have this Christian walk and, and, and think, hey, it's easy believing. All I got to do is believe and, and, and I ain't got no other trouble. He said, no, suffering goes along with that. Remember, look at Galatians chapter 1, um, verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says to be a servant of Christ means many times to go against the way the world is going, and, and to not be trying to please everybody, but trying to please God. You can't do them both. Jesus says, you, you know, you can't have two masters. You only serve one master. You're going to love the one, adhere to him, be faithful to the one, and you're going you're gonna to push off the other one. You're going to ignore him. You're not going to serve the other one. You're not going to give in to the other one. You can only serve one. And so too many people are trying to serve God and man at the expense of serving God. So he says, when you come to serve God, there's, there's some hardships you're going to go through because you're going against the grain. You're going against the flow, against the current of the world. Would you accept that? Would you give in and say, yes, Lord, to follow you means to go against the wave of most everybody else. And I'm okay with that because as long as I'm with you, I'm okay. See, that's a part of Christianity. We think now that I'm saved, I can just, I got an easy world. If I get sick, I just pray and I get well. If I lose my job, I just pray and I get, get a better job. I get more money, bigger house, better car. This is great. I'm living a good life. You think what, that's what salvation is about. Paul says, no, you're going to have some hardships. Because if you're the servant of God, you're not always just trying to please man. There's some hardships, there's some suffering, some agonies that you will go through. Verse 5, does he su supply that, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's saying, look at your own experience. You know that since you've been saved, God's been doing a mighty work. Did that work come through the Spirit or did that come by your works, your obedience to the law. And I, I, the answer is obvious. It's the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. It even allows him to experience and to see miracles. It's that you've seen miracles amongst yourselves. Who are you attributing that to? Your obedience or the Holy Spirit and his work because of faith? He uses an example. Just as Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you have to remember, Paul 
is speaking. Paul is an authority on the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he says, look, at, look back at chapter 1, uh, verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. What was the traditions of his fathers? It was the law. It was, it was the old, what we call the Old Testament, the Word of God. He knew it inside and out. And he begins to use, he's an expert at that. He begins to use that as a testimony to these who, who, who were faced, these Galatians, these believers in Galatia, who were faced with false teachers who were calling themselves experts on the law. And he says, I, I beg to differ with them. And let me show you why. He says, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now he uses another term, righteous. If, if you go throughout this chapter, you're going to see a number of things that are compared to the law. That, that are contrast with the law. Look, look at the phrase, works of the law. <clears throat> verse 2. Do you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, the works of the law or faith? In verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and, and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You'll continue almost in, 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 in every verse you'll see a contrast between the works of the law and faith. What are works of the law? Works are man's doings, man's action of behavior, and the law is that Old Testament or the, 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 the law that came down from God, we sometimes call the Ten Commandments. It says, do you have to obey these things in order to be saved or does salvation come in some other way? And he begins to describe it in another way. In verse 6, he uses the word righteousness. Just as Abraham believed God, Abraham had faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham became right with God. How? By working the law, by his obedience, or no? It was by his faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, righteousness in the Bible is something that we use the term in theology as imputed righteousness. It means it's not something I possess already. It's something that has to be given to me. Okay? Now you can see how that, that already conflicts with what people think. People think that every man, every, every human being has goodness inside them. Now, I agree they have something inside them. And they can work on their, they can act on their own uh, motives and do a lot of quote-unquote good things. People work hard on their jobs because they won't get paid at the end of the week. And they would do their jobs well. They would take pride in it. We do a lot of good things. But that's different than having righteousness. Righteousness means you are like God. And in fact, you are right with God. In reality, righteousness means per perfection. And none of us have that. And righteousness means, intimately, it means being right with God, being on right terms with God. 
Bible makes it clear you might do some good and some right here and there, but you're not on right terms with God because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we have a problem relating back to God. So we don't have a, 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 a righteousness of our own that we have, that we've been born with, or even that we develop along the way. Righteousness has to be imputed to us. It has to be given to The word impute means put on our account. All right? So, you know, if you have a credit card, that credit card is only good as what you, as good as what you got in the bank. Well, let me use the debit card. If you got a debit card, it's only as good as what you got in the bank. If you got a credit card, it's only good as your credit. And so in my debit card, I have imputed on there my paycheck. <laughs> and as I go through the month, that imputation goes down, <laughs> right? It gets real, real low. It's kind of like my, my, my gas tank in, in my truck, you know. It starts off on full, but it's, hey, it starts going really, really low. That's how our righteousness is, except it don't start off on full. It starts on zero, and it never goes anywhere. We have to have something imputed, something put on our account. God says, this most favored man of Scripture didn't get that way by his own self, his own imputed righteousness. He got that way because God gave him or put on his account righteousness. And what was the basis of God doing that? He makes it clear here, as well as the Old Testament, you can go read in, in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 18, and so on. You will see that God began to speak with Abraham, and he says this, and, and Paul quotes it, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It didn't say Abraham believed God because he was righteous. It doesn't say Abraham had a, a bunch of righteousness in him and caused him to believe God. It says Abraham believed God, and that was counted as righteousness. This faith that he had in God was looked on by God as righteousness. Now, we can argue how he got that faith, where it came from, but I'll spin your head around and, and argue the same thing. God gave it to him. Everything he had, God gave him. Same as you and me. This righteousness, God says, I'm going to count your faith, your trust in me as your righteousness. Let's continue. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Why does he bring the sons of Abraham? Because that's important to the Jew. The Jew realized that Abraham was key in Scripture, and they counted themselves as sons of Abraham. Did you know Abraham was not a Jew? The, the, the Jewish heritage didn't start until after. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's Jacob's name that was changed to Israel, right? Amen? Y'all follow me? It's Jacob's name that, 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 that was changed to Israel, and from that he had 12 sons that are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, they count themselves back to Abraham because Abraham is the father of all of faith. And God says here that it's Abraham's faith 
that was looked at by God as righteousness, and therefore he was right with God. And that example is given so that we might understand we come to be right with God in the very same way, by faith in God. We, in fact, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God has sent to make us right with him. So it's not by our, in, it's not by our uh, 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 righteousness that we have in and of ourselves. It is by believing and trusting in Christ that we are counted as righteous. So he used Abraham as an example. And he says this very powerful thing in verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith, now that, that, that in itself is it's enough to just stop me, right? The Scripture foreseen, the, the Scripture understood God's purpose and His plan. And what was that plan? That God would justify who? The Gentiles. How? By faith. In other words, God's plan in the Old Testament was He was going to bring about a people that was His own, and it wasn't just the Jews. God's plan was to bring the Gentiles into him. And how was he going to do that? By law? No, by faith. That's God's purpose. And he's saying as God began to work out that purpose, what did he do? So verse 8 again, in the scripture, for seeing that God would justify, let me, let me slow down a little bit. And the scripture, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That just blows me away. What do you mean? The gospel in the Old Testament spoken to Abraham? Really? Yes. He said, wait a minute. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. How, is that, how, does, how does that come in the Old Testament to Abraham? The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith spoke to Abraham. In other words, Abraham was an example, and he was set to pave the way for us thinking rightly about what God was doing and, and understanding his whole purpose. His whole purpose is for Jew and Gentile that he would provide a way for them to come and be made right with him, and that way was by faith and not by some obedience to any law or some ritual like circumcision. It was by faith. And so it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, continue in verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What is the gospel? Here it is, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That phrase right there. He said, that's the gospel? Yes, it is. God said to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. How is that the gospel? That is the gospel. You said the gospel talks about Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's talking about Jesus Christ. In you, Abraham, I am going to pick one, your seed, your offspring, and through him all the nations are going to be blessed. I ain't talking about just have trees growing in the desert and water in their land and, and, and being rich with cattle. I'm talking about eternal blessing. 
eternal life that comes through you, Abraham, or one of yours, your offspring. The New Testament introduced in Matthew says, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. God fulfills his promise. It even gets deeper as we go on, and we're going to have to get to that. Can we skip just for a moment to verse 15? To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul just jumps right to it. He says, look, and you need to understand the Old Testament is talking about God blessing through Abraham is not just Abraham's people, Israel. It's a singular offspring God had in mind, and that's Jesus Christ. So he makes it plain. So we have an expert in the law, Paul, explaining to them in an enlightened way. He's been enlightened by Jesus Christ himself. Remember he said this gospel didn't come from man. It didn't come from, from, from anybody else. It came from God. He said, God spoke to me and let me know. And see, he's not bringing anything new. What he's doing is opening eyes of what God was saying in the Old Testament. God's been clear all along. This is his purpose. And he's going to do that through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go back into uh, 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 verse 8. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You'll find that in, in, in Genesis 12 and repeat it again, I believe, in 15 and 16 as well. Um. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What he does is important there. He ties the faith, not to the law, but to the promise God made to Abraham. And he says all those are connected with Abraham who are of faith, of real faith. See, the Jews claim to tie to Abraham, and they do. But he says, you aren't the only ones. <laughs> because the Gentiles are tying themselves to Abraham, those who are of faith themselves to Abraham. Of faith, I mean by faith in God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tie themselves to Abraham. Now we know that there's, uh, we live with Muslims today claim to tie themselves with Abraham too. Well, they can in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, God says, look, this Abraham I'm talking about, I'm referring to the one seed. I'm getting real specific. You want to throw out the one seed, you want to throw out who Jesus is, then you rejected God's whole plan and his whole purpose. It comes through Jesus. So if you hung up on, 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 on Muhammad uh, and you ignored Jesus, you want to call him a good man, but he's not the Lord, then you've rejected God's plan. He said that one seed is Jesus Christ. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Paul makes it plain. He said, look, 
If you're relying on works of the law, your obedience to the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament so that you can get into heaven or you can be right with God, you cursed already. Because, he goes on to explain, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So you can't just say, I'm going to eat right and obey the dietary commands of the Old Testament but not obey everything. If we just narrow it down to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. You should have no other gods before you. None! Every single human being fails at that point right there. So he says, don't you realize how cursed you are? If you attempt to get right with God by trying to keep the law, it's an impossible task. Verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He uses another argument. The righteous shall live by faith. I think it's Habakkuk 2. I think it is. Or you'll find that in your footnotes if you look. Um, he quotes another Old Testament scripture that says, look, this is what the law says. The righteous will live by faith. Not by obedience to the law, but by faith. So he's making it clear that even the Old Testament challenges their argument that they're going to have eternal life through the law. He makes a startling statement in verse 12, but the law is not a faith. <laughs> it doesn't take faith to live by the law. It's not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The one who thinks he does them is going to try to live by them, but he never make it. Verse 13, Christ redeems us. Here he, he summarizes it. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he quotes the law again, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. It was cursed to be put to death that way, and that's exactly what Jesus received. But he received it for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's keep going. He uses this human example. And he says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. What's the man-made covenant that he's talking about? He's talking about the covenant that God had with Abraham that he referred to earlier. And he said, that can't be changed. God made it. It can't be altered or changed. And so whatever you think the law says... Since this covenant came first, the law can't cancel out what this promise and this covenant God made with Abraham. Whatever that meant, the law can't change it. And now we understand what it meant. He says, through you, Abraham, all the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed. And we understand that that means he's going to do that through Jesus. Then whatever the law says is not going to cancel that out or change that. He makes the point by saying, look, we already read verse 16 to your offspring, meaning the, the law centers, excuse me, the, the, the covenant centers itself in Jesus Christ. Then he explains, verse 17, this is what I mean. 
the law which came 430 years afterwards. In other words, he says, this promise of this covenant with Abraham came first, and then some 430 years afterwards came Moses and the law. So he's just making a point that it's, it came way after Abraham, and, and God made a promise and a covenant, an agreement, a bond, a commitment with Abraham, and he's going to keep that. And whatever your understanding of the law is, it ain't going to change that. Now, later on, he's going to say, whatever your understanding of the law is, it's not going to conflict with that either. But I'll get to that in a minute. So he says this, verse 18, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Plain. The next question comes, well then, what's the law? Why did God even give the law? Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now, he could specify and, and give you three or four reasons why the law came because of transgressions. One, it came to identify transgressions to make it known what was right and what was wrong. You know, you go to work one day and, and you wear those, those uh, uh, pants that you think is, is really in style and you didn't realize, uh-oh, they didn't want those form-fitting pants at work. And they have a code of dress that doesn't allow that. And you say, to you, oh, I didn't know. He said, did you read your, your ethic code book when you hired on? See, and you said, well, unless you write it down, you can't tell me it's wrong. Well, that's what the law does. The law writes it down. So you understand God's thinking and why it's right or why it's not right or why it's wrong. So the law came because of transgressions. Law came in one sense to identify what's right and wrong. In another sense, the law came to deal with what's right and wrong, at least in a temporary way. So if there was sin, there could be a payment for sin. It was a sacrificial a sacrifice made, an animal sacrifice made as a temporary payment or atonement for that sin. So the law came for that. The law also came, he explains later, to point us to Christ and to show us that God's standard is so high you can't reach it, ain't no hope. There must be another way. The law came to set that, to show that you and I can't keep this law and we keep bumping our heads up against the law. There must be another way that God has made. And, and, and Paul says it this way later on in this chapter. It's a guardian. It, it's, it's the one to lead us and pave us and point us to Jesus Christ. Because we go, man, if that's the only way I got of getting right with God, I'm in bad shape. I'll never get it that way. Well, the law does all of that. That's what he says in verse 19. Why then the law was added because of transgression? Until the offspring, who is that? Christ. One of Sunday school answers, right? Jesus. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You read that the law came to Moses through God, by God, through angels. It was, it was a big fanfare. And it was put in place that way. But he said it was put there until the offspring should come. And that offspring speaks of Jesus Christ. Next question. 
Well, is the law contrary to the promises of God? The answer right there, verse 21, certainly not. For if a law had been made that could, could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If there was some law that God could make that would make us all right, he would have done it by the law. But he couldn't do that. Turn with me real quick to, to, uh, to Romans uh, chapters. We're going to look at two verses. Romans chapter 7, verse 12, I think it is. Romans 7, verse 12. Somebody, just somebody volunteer, stand up and read that for me. If you have the ESV, Romans 7, 12. All right. He just makes it clear. Nothing wrong with the law. It's holy, it's righteous, and it's good. Now look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. I'll read that one. It says, where does 3 start? Oh, there it is. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. Now, what does it mean the law is weakened by the flesh? The effect of the law is weakened by man's sinfulness. It's impossible for the law to make us right with God because we just can't do it because we're too weak because we cannot keep this law. So the problem with the law is not the law itself. It's good. It's righteous. The problem is man's sinfulness. So Paul makes the argument back in Galatians, look, that can't be your solution. But he answers the question, why then the law? If it was possible that, that God could redeem us or bring us back in right relationship with, uh, with himself through the law, he would have done it through the law, but that was impossible. In fact, verse 22, I'm in Galatians chapter 3 again, verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everybody under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's a powerful statement. The, the scripture imprisoned everybody in sin. Another word for the scripture there is the law. The law puts you and me in jail. Because we can't keep it. And we waiting for somebody to bail us out. And it ain't going to be none of us. <laughs> it's something, you know, if you ever get tickets <laughs> and get, get, go down and, 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 and they put you in jail and, and they tell you you got to pay the tickets for you until you get out. First of all, you need somebody <laughs> who got the money to pay those tickets and ain't scared to come to the police department because they get in trouble themselves, right? That's what you need. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so you hope you got a good friend. And you call your friend, man, what you doing? Oh, man, I'm just getting high, just having some fun, just drinking. Oh, man. He might have the money, but he, <laughs> he can't come down to the police station and bail you out. 
Then you call another friend. You hope you got one who is, 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 is clear, right, in his right mind, got the money, got a clear record, and is willing to help you out. <laughs> so the law imprisoned us until the Redeemer could come and pay the price for us to get out. That's what Paul is saying. He says, now why you want to go back to that? You mean Christ done bailed you out and you want to go back? You want to go back to a system that says, hey, in order for you to be right, you got to keep all of these. And you think you're okay with that. He grows on that thought in verse 23. Now before faith came, by, by the, term, the term faith came, he's talking about Jesus. Before our redemption came through, through, through our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and faith in him. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned. We were held captive. We were slaves. All of those terms speak to our state. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Notice it, it, it couples faith came and Christ came. So we not understand what it's talking about. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that Christ has come, we put our faith in him, we're no longer obligated to follow and to keep, and we're restricted by the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now notice what it didn't say. It didn't say, through Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God, every one of you. No, it says you're sons of God through faith. It's through faith. It's not just... Anybody and everybody's included, but it's through faith. I want to make a few more statements before I close here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He uses the term baptism, and it means to be placed into water. Baptism means you're placed into water. It's a, it's a way of identifying with Christ. We're saying, hey, look, I, I'm... Christ has, has saved me. I owe my life to him. I identify him. I wear his colors, right? I belong to him. I'm showing everybody that I belong to him. It's one of the things that baptism does. And he says, you were baptized into Christ. You put on Christ. You're a new person. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. He's saying we are, <coughs> it's no longer based, our status is no longer based on who we are. It's based on what Christ has done. Now, just a quick clarification, because we have some idiots today, excuse me for being so blunt, who want to use this to say we can erase the distinction of male and female today, and so you don't need men in women's bathrooms, and you don't... He said, there's no, he said, look, I'm talking about who you are in Christ 
and that there is no longer a, a, a limit he has for everyone who trusts him. It doesn't mean that there's no distinctions between people. There's, God still made male and female. They're very distinct from each other. Just because you're saved don't mean you're going to own a company and never have to work anymore. There's going to be some rich and there's going to be some poor. There are going to be some Gentile, there are going to be some Jew, there are some of various different nations, there are going to be black and white and every other color. There's still going to be all those distinctions, but what we have in common, we're in Christ. So it doesn't, doesn't say it's eliminating any and every distinction, it just means those distinctions don't have the, 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 the uh, uh, purpose of keeping you or making you different in your status with Christ. God likes distinctions. He made us different for reasons. Like you probably won't see a blade of grass that the same, that's the same. You won't see a, a snowflake that's the same as another if you look at it closely. You won't see two flowers that are exactly the same. God loves that distinction. What he's saying is, is that in Christ, none of those distinctions affect your status in him or your standing with him. You're justified the same way by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. Help us to understand. It's a lot to chew on as we go through Paul's strong argument, his heavy use of the Old Testament and reliance on it, but help us to understand and most of all, help us to appreciate the glory of the gospel and your purpose through Abraham. All families of the world will be blessed through, you, through Abraham's seed, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith in Christ that we speak of now. It's not anything else. It's not church membership. It's not church attendance. It is not tithing. It is not doing good in any way or form that allows us to have a right relationship with you. It is faith in Jesus Christ. That faith does change us. It does transform us. It does cause us to be your children and be, become your servants. But help us to understand that, Lord, that we would understand the gospel and then appreciate the Lord of the gospel who planned it this way, who purposed everything to be in his son. Now, Lord, I pray that we would bring our lives in in step with the gospel. We believe it and we live by it and we go and tell others. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. As we say amen to God's word and his powerful gospel, I'm going to ask our leaders to come as we Prepare for our communion. It's a little different for us to have communion on Sunday morning. We've had it on the first Sunday, but we normally have it on Sunday evening. And now we no longer have an evening service, so we'll do it on Sunday morning. We need to understand what communion means and what it represents. Communion means fellowship. It's fellowship that we have with each other because of Jesus Christ. If your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, you're part 
of who he's talking about. You need to be part of a local church and be obedient to him. But that faith comes or that eternal life comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether you are young or old, a member or not, you can have faith in Christ and walk with Christ. Our communion then remembers what Christ has done for us. He died on the cross to pay for our sin. He rose again from the dead. We have two elements that we remember, we think about as we come and worship and are thankful to Christ, his body and his blood. He took on a human body so that he could pay the price for our sin on the cross and die for our sin. Then his blood was shed to signify his death so we remember what Christ has done. We said this, that in our communion together, it's something that we do as a church. You need to be a part of the church to participate in that. We ask that those parents who have children who are not yet old enough to be a part of the church, that you would just keep them from communion until you trained and taught them, and it's time for them to do that. If you have any questions on that, we talk with you and answer any questions that you might have. Communion is also for those not just saved, but those part of the church, but also those walking in obedience to the Lord. If there's anything in your life that God has convicted you on, you need to get that right before you can participate in communion. That's not something I can always judge because I can't see your heart. But God certainly does, and he holds you accountable for that. And so there's a period of examination that we need to do before we take communion. And you need to examine yourself. You are responsible for doing that before you receive communion today. So we trust that you understand and will follow guidelines that Scripture has given that way. And let's remember what it is we do. We remember Christ. Remember his death. Remember his resurrection, and we're waiting for his soon return to earth. And that's what we celebrate and look forward to. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. If you will bow your heads in prayer, I'm going to ask Brian if he will pray for us. And then I'm going to ask Andy if he will pray for the element of our, our cracker or our bread. And then Lawrence will pray for our juice that we'll take as a part of our remembrance today. Let's pray. that you just forgive us of our sins, Lord. We know, Lord, that we are not perfect. And you don't have that expectation of our perfection, Lord, but you want us to be living lives that are consistent with you, Lord. So I pray you forgive us all of our sins, Lord. Many of us, um, Lord, are striving to follow you, Lord, and we thank you, Lord. We just can't be thankful enough for those who are faithful in this church. This church wouldn't be here without faithful people following you, Lord. You put faithfulness in us. And so, Lord, I pray also in addition to that, Lord, that you would just challenge people, Lord, challenge all of us to look inside of ourselves and to be honest with ourselves and admit we are not perfect. And we have sins, Lord. But if it's some kind of sin, Lord, that we can't rectify right now, 
Help us to abstain from communion. We might be ashamed a little bit that we can't take it today, but that's okay. It's better to be ashamed and obey you than to be prideful and be ignorant of the judgment to come. So help us to be consistent with you, Lord. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us if we got an issue with a brother or sister, we can't even um, be cordial with that person, Lord. Help us to rectify that first before we take communion. But Lord, above all, Lord, help us to want and desire to take communion because it remembers all that you've done for us. And it looks forward to the day when we will all eat together and we'll say, Lord, we did it. And so, Lord, I pray that you just bless, bless us, Lord, to be encouraged in that way. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord, we continue in prayer. We just think of the cracker, Lord, as um, it is a reminder of your body, Lord, the sacrifice you made for us. As the verse we read today, it said, cursed was that who hung on a tree, Lord, and you did that. You took that curse for us. Lord, help us remember what you did for us, Lord, and also help us remember as it signifies your body, that we are part of your body. In your name we pray. Lord, we just um, bow before you today, just thanking you for the cup and what it represents that we'll be taking today, Lord. And um, the blood that was spilled in the, on the cross for us, Lord, for our sins, for us to be able to stand before you, Lord, in a manner that is worthy. I just pray today, Lord, as we take this cup, that we think about all of the, the sacrifice, the pain, the hardship that went into making that act of sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name I pray. If you would follow the instructions that I'm about to give as we take communion, we're going to have um, <clears throat> two of our leaders go on the side to the back, and they're going to dismiss the rows out this way, starting at the back. You're going to walk forward, receive um, your tray. It's going to have both um, elements in it, the cracker and the juice. You'll take it and go back to your seat through the center aisle. So they'll dismiss you, start with the back, come around, receive the elements, Go back to your seat through the center aisle. We're going to ask that everybody come through, even if you don't take communion, just walk through to keep our flow going and consistent, okay? So, men, if you would go to the back. We will start then with those back rows as you come follow right after them. We're going to wait till everyone is served before we do this together. So come all the rows as they direct you. That's not for you guys. you continue on familiar with our cup it has two openings the first if you open that carefully you'll see the wafer and then underneath that is another opening and you'll open that for the cup <clears throat> for the juice as everybody received So if you would, carefully open that thin layer, and you'll see the wafer there. If you would, hold that wafer. 
This represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't magically become anything. It's not sacred in and of itself, but it does represent Jesus Christ. He came out of heaven, took on a human body so that he could be our Savior. He could be like us, a human being, and yet without sin, he could go to the cross and pay for our sin. Let's remember Jesus as we eat together. Next, we peel that next layer, and it opens up the cup for the juice. Again, this is just juice, but it represents Jesus' blood. We're not drinking blood today. We drink juice, but it represents Jesus' blood. Why is Jesus' blood important? Because it shows that he died. He shed his blood, he bled, and he died for our sin. Not just suffered. He was tortured, but he died for our sin. He had to die to pay for our sin. And he did that for all the sins of those who trust in him. We remember the price that he paid, that he did it willingly. He said, no man takes my life. I give my life. He did that for you and for me. We trust in Christ. Let's remember Christ as we drink together. <clears throat> We're going to close our service I didn't ask him ahead of time, but I'm going to ask Brother Cliff now. He's going to pray for us as we leave. We had a meeting just on Wednesday, and we did our membership role, and we had a category for members who are in heaven. And if I take communion now, I remember some of those who were once with us, and we enjoy fellowship with them. And we're not going to take communion for them or in their behalf. We're waiting to join them. We're not trying to bring them back to us, although we miss them dearly. We're looking forward to when we will be with Christ and with others who are in Christ. Shirley Hill, Minnie Kathy, Mac Holt, Beverly Alexander, those ones who were faithful serving here, trusted in Christ, no longer here, but they're with Christ. Just think about their faithfulness and endeavor to, to serve faithfully until our time to be with Christ and look forward to being with Christ and, yes, seeing them again. Cliff, would you close us in prayer? Now unto him who is able to keep us until that day. Lord, we pray for safe passage to our homes, and we thank you for allowing us to, uh, to take your, of your table today as a remembrance of you. Bless us now as we dismiss, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.